This is the Monday, June 12, 2017 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. All of us will ultimately be judged. And as the years pass, we will surely judge ourselves on the effort we have contributed to building a new world society and the extent to which our ideals and goals have shaped that event. Our future may lie beyond our vision, but it is not completely beyond our control. It is the shaping impulse of America that neither fate nor nature nor the irresistible tides of history, but the work of our own hands, matched to reason and principle that will determine our destiny. There is pride in that, even arrogance, but there is also experience and truth. And in any event, it is the only way we can live. That is the way he lived, and that is what he leaves us. My brother need not be idealized or enlarged in death beyond what he was in life. To be remembered simply as a good and decent man who saw wrong and tried to right it, saw suffering and tried to heal it, saw war and tried to stop it. Those of us who loved him and who take him to his rest today pray that what he was to us what he wished for others will someday come to pass for all the world. As he said many times in many parts of this nation, to those he touched and who sought to touch him, some men see things as they are and say why. I dream things that never were and say why not. Welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. That's Senator Edward M. Kennedy delivering a eulogy to his slain brother Robert on June 4, 1968, just five years after their other brother, President John F. Kennedy, fell to an assassin's bullet. This week, our time machine travels back to those turbulent 1960s before the second tragedy struck. Touching down, we'll find a nation in mourning, and we'll meet Robert F. Kennedy, who found himself torn between grief and the call to pick up his brother's mantle of public service. Ultimately, Robert Kennedy would leave his post in President Lyndon Johnson's cabinet, run for the United States Senate from New York, and transform from his older brother's attorney general and confidant to a champion of the common man, 
with a style that lives on in our politics half a century after his own death. Our guide on this journey is John R. Bohr, author of The Revolution of Robert Kennedy, From Power to Protest After JFK. Mr. Bohr is a reporter, historian, television news producer, and a fellow Jersey boy like myself. And you may also have read his work or seen it cited in the New York Times, Washington Post, Boston Globe, New York Magazine, Political, USA Today, heck, wherever fine writing is found on politics. You can follow him on Twitter at J-R-B-O-H or visit JohnRBoer.com. That's John with an H and the last name is spelled B-O-H-R-E-R. Okay, now that we know a little bit about our guest, let's meet John R. Bohr and join The Revolution of Robert Kennedy. I'm joined on the line by John R. Bohr, author of The Revolution of Robert Kennedy, From Power to Protest After JFK. Thanks for making time to chat with the History Authors Show. Thanks, Dean. I appreciate it so much. I enjoyed this book. We're both political animals. We just spent 12 minutes beforehand here just talking about the recent campaign and casting back to this era that you write about in The Revolution of Robert Kennedy. RFK's life, though, his eye on the presidency here in the late 60s starts tragically. It's not something he's really ready for. He's thrust into it. And you write in the book that his life before that assassination was simple. In fact, like Theodore Roosevelt, it struck me that TR's vice president and he learns that McKinley is dying and that he's going to be president. He's just sitting there up in the Adirondacks eating a sandwich. And that's just such a mundane activity. And RFK is doing the same thing. I think it's a tuna sandwich. It's a, just the most basic thing, especially when we think about the Kennedys and this blue blood. And we probably think he'd be eating watercress sandwiches if he was eating anything at all. And yet he's just living his life. He's a very young guy. He's just never would have thought that his brother, who was so vital and, and young and healthy, would suddenly be cut down. So what was his role? What was that simple life before the shots ring out in Dealey Plaza? Yeah, he was eating a tuna sandwich because it was a Friday and he was a Catholic. At the time of the assassination, they were planning the re-election campaign for the next year. They were starting to map out the next 12 months and all of a sudden he didn't know what he'd be doing a week from then. But his role before the assassination was as his brother's political advisor. His, he was his campaign manager. He was his legal advisor as attorney general. He was his foreign policy advisor. He was a friend to him, and he was really a protector. He was a person who looked out for his interests. A columnist wrote around that time that Bobby needed to be in physical proximity to the president wherever he was, just so that they could be together and bounce ideas off each other. There was a relationship that really was forged over the course of several years, not when they were children, but when they were young adults. Bobby put his life on hold, basically, for JFK's political career whenever it was required. He missed his law school graduation to run Jack's 52 campaign. He joined Adlai Stevenson's race in 1956 to learn how a presidential operation worked, even though it was clear there was no chance of their winning. He put his whole heart and soul into the 1960 presidential campaign, working harder than a mortal man, I think, as Joseph Kennedy said. When that was over, though, he kind of planned to go on his own. And Joseph Kennedy, the ambassador to the Court of St. James, insisted that he take the job as attorney general. 
because he basically knew that JFK needed someone who would tell him the truth every time, tell him uh, what was right and keep him on the right path. But Bobby also gained something from JFK in that time. He gained direction. And he would say after the assassination that he knew what he was going to do. And he would get this question over and over again is, you know, what's next? He just didn't have an answer for it for the longest time, really, even he ran for the Senate and he won. And he still, I think, didn't quite know what his future would hold just because for the longest time he had planned it out as just do what my brother needs, do what the family needs. And all of a sudden that wasn't very clear. That's it. It's his whole life here and it gets sucked out from under him. And another thing I thought reading The Revolution of Robert Kennedy is one of the reasons that I love history is you can look to it for examples of people who can guide you on your path because they've walked that path already. Here's a man who is in such a unique position. There's really nobody to look to that has even a 50% similar walk that he has now. Again, I go back to McKinley and Theodore Roosevelt, where Senator Mark Hanna, before he was a senator, was the driving force behind McKinley's campaigns for governor in Ohio and just made McKinley his whole life. Political observers at that time would say he looks at McKinley like a girl looks at her betrothed. He just loved the guy. And then here he gets assassinated. But that's not his brother. That's somebody he loves like a brother, but that's not his brother. And it's not in the middle of his career. This is just a shocking thing for him. And he's also an older man at that time, Mark Hanna, whereas you have Robert Kennedy. He's only in his 30s. He's young and he sees him murdered. It's just a shock. So who did RFK look to in those early months after Dallas as his example and inspiration so he could find that path forward? Yeah. Ironically, he was dwelling on JFK. I mean, he was really his point of reference for a lot of things in those first weeks. He looked at the authors that inspired JFK as well. He, he was quoting Lord Tweedsmere about politics being the most honorable adventure. JFK would sometimes quote Andrew Jackson. He wrote this forward to the memorial edition of Profiles in Courage. And drafting that, he wrote the word courage at the top of the page. And he wrote about Andrew Jackson quoting that and the qualities of courage. But in, in time, Jackie Kennedy would introduce him to Greek poetry, where he would really immerse himself in these stories about just men and unjust endings. He molded on that legacy of JFK, and he really molded on the image of JFK for years after, I mean, really the rest of his life. Dick Goodwin, who was an aide to John Kennedy and later wrote speeches for Bobby, would say that he seemed obsessed by it. And one day they were in his apartment, they were having drinks, and Dick Goodwin said to him, you know, Caesar only reigned for three years, just like JFK. And RFK said something along the lines of like, well, it helps if you have Shakespeare to write about you. Mm. He was also completely compared to his brother at all times as well. So it wasn't like an easy thing for him to escape. But as far as his predicament, I really think that JFK was for him like the singular person. And he's the third brother, by the way. You and I are both too young, I guess, to remember the Kennedys at all. But he's the third brother. So there's an older brother, Joe Kennedy, who was supposed right. to be president and dies in a really risky mission in World War II, a test mission. So then JFK picks up the mantle. So you could say maybe a middle son, a second son might have some more attention have been paid to them in this big Kennedy brood. But he's really the third and he's a lot younger. So this is really a surprise for him. Yeah. And, you know, I would also say the other thing about the when we, mentioning the brothers, he talked about the suffering that JFK 
sustained in his life. You know, he talked about his illnesses and he was researching them in those weeks after the assassination. And he wrote about how JFK did not let people know he was suffering and this idea of Kennedy's don't cry and everything like that. And that wasn't because they didn't cry because they were tougher in some ways. They also didn't cry because they were trying to not make others feel their pain to be brave. And I think that was uh, something that he learned from his family. These are men who really stuck together and they placed the value of family above, above all else. Ted Kennedy became much closer with Robert Kennedy after the assassination of JFK. In some ways, too, Ted Kennedy became his brother's mentor because he had gone to the Senate in 1962. And when RFK arrived there, he was ranked 99th out of 100 in seniority. And he needed someone who understood the ways of the Senate. And Ted Kennedy understood it so much better than Bobby did. He was uh, much better ingratiating himself and being smooth, some ways that JFK was and that Bobby just could not pick up. He just did not have the patience for it. Yeah, you mentioned that about Kennedy's Don't Cry and also about that first day in eighth grade feeling that you get when RFK walks into the Senate and needs somebody to tell him where to sit. And those things are all a hierarchy. People who are listening may not know just how much that is important, where you sit in the Senate and what those desks have and the history of the desks. Robert Kennedy is a guy who he does cry. There's this thing about them not crying that people have heard of. It's part of the Camelot legend, but he does have emotions and feel pain, I think, because it was the previous assassination again and again about the ties to Theodore Roosevelt. His eldest daughter, Alice Roosevelt Longworth, who they called the other Washington Monument during her long life because she was so into politics, <laughs> she used to be friends with both Kennedys. She would like to tease people. She would sit them next to uh, Richard Nixon and because she knew that they disagreed, but were very good friends, by the way, and they would give each other a hard time. And she would love to tease John Kennedy, but he would laugh her off, joke back with her. But Bobby Kennedy was thin-skinned, and so she saw a target right there. She loved to tease the thin-skinned guy, and so she would try to get a rise out of him. And one thing she said to him after he climbed Mount Kennedy in Canada in tribute to his brother was, what are you going to do for your next feat, run around Kennedy Airport, which is both cruel and incredibly biting. If it was a movie, you'd think it was funny. If it was someone you didn't like, who didn't just lose their brother, you would think that was hilarious comedy. But this is just was her way and her way of dealing with pain, which she had plenty of in her life. Yeah. So I wonder how RFK evolves and matures over the course of the revolution of Robert Kennedy so he could deal with slights like that. Because if he does decide to follow his brother into politics, and that's all where everything is pushing him, He's going to have to learn to deal with little insults like that or teasing or downright cruel things. Yeah, he he had a decent sense of humor. I think it took some time for it to manifest itself publicly. Margaret Chase Smith also made the same sort of joke about him climbing Mount Kennedy, which was, I think, the tallest unclimbed peak mm -hmm. in North America at the time when it was named. He took off basically in the middle of the Voting Rights Act legislating in 1965. While people in Congress were there, he was off in the Yukon. And Margaret Chase Smith said they had just named a mountain in Maine for a, a famous Mainer. And she said, I'd love to go climb it, but we have work here to do. And he's on the floor of the Senate at the time. I think he's presiding and he winces slightly. As time went on, he started introducing sarcasm into his speeches and self-deprecating humor. And, you know, at the 1964 Democratic National Convention in Atlantic City, when he had just announced he was a New Yorker and going to run for the Senate, 
he went to the West Virginia delegation and he said, you know, um, I want you to know I'm not running for any office in West Virginia, which was like, I guess I would say he's was in on the joke of his life <laughs> and that uh, people were going to view him as ruthless. People were going to view him as opportunistic. And he just kind of had to go with it. There's this great campaign footage of him speaking to college students at Columbia in 1964. He begins the speech and this is kind of hostile audience. And he says, you know, a bright group of students. I learned to say that since becoming a candidate. Like, I have to, you know, actually kiss up to you now. <laughs> so it was all that kind of stuff that I think would have been strange for Robert Kennedy a few years prior. He never got completely comfortable with it. But I think people liked him for being honest about who he was. And I think he learned to just accept that he wasn't going to be Mr. Popular. People were going to have come in with their preconceived notions about him because he was one of the most knowable people in the world. To go back to your earlier point about this is really incomparable for what Robert Kennedy had done, you know, position he was in. He looked like the guy who was on everyone's mind. It was his boss and his family. And he had all of a sudden to come up, you know, against this startling change. It was tough. He was really not many people to look for for that. So he had to um, just kind of be himself. And he didn't get the chance to develop a sense of humor more, but I think you can see the trajectory. He was never going to be the cut-up. He was never going to be a James Traficant congressman from Ohio out there giving these wild speeches and ending them with, beam me up, Mr. Speaker. Well, that was Teddy's <laughs> job, yeah. Yeah, right. Well, you had to, like you said, find who I am, <laughs> right? You know, you're not going to do the, the funny stuff. And it does play into this notion of him when I look at it as the new kid in school and you're brother was a star on the football team to carry the analogy farther. And now they're saying, well, who are you? And people do tease and people are really tough on you. And there's a hundred people there who don't want to hear you inherited your office. So there's resentment and everything else in, in the U.S. Senate and jealousies. And you're going to have to prove yourself. It's a, it's a tough business. We just saw in this last campaign so much of that talked about where people were telling you, hey, you know, you have to pay your dues. They say that with vice presidents all the time that you have to pay your dues and get through. And this is our courtyard. And now he's stepping into it. And he's stepping into it with a lot of people behind him. He's an inspiring guy. And sort of like I believe it was Dwight D. Eisenhower's son who said, I feel like I'm wearing an Ike mask sometimes because he looked so much like him. Robert Kennedy has that same thing. And people are drawn to him then in his own right. That's sort of the entrance there is that he's a Kennedy and that his brother was just slain. But people are really drawn to him. You have the cover of the revolution of Robert Kennedy. The picture is called the close-up democracy. Describe that to us and how you chose it for the cover and how it illustrates the people loving this guy, even though maybe he's facing a little hazing and ribbing in the Senate. Yeah, it's a beautiful photo. Uh, it was taken by a guy named Stephen Shapiro, a photographer. He's still alive, actually. He's out in Chicago. He traveled with Bobby extensively over those years. The photo could easily be mistaken, I think, for 1968 from the presidential campaign, but it's not. It's actually from 1966. If you um, look closely, I think you can see a campaign sign for Governor Brown there. That's He's in California. That's Pat Brown, who's the father of Jerry. At the time, he was running for a third term against the Republican a candidate named uh, Ronald Reagan. But you see Bobby sort of standing in the center there. He looks almost like a saint or an idol of some kind being carried. People are reaching for his hands. He's kind of looking away with like a half smile, half wince. And yet there's also this, I think, thing that followed Bobby for the rest of his life because of who he was. And this like this cloud of death. 
the open car, which I think, you know, you see a Kennedy in an open car, do you still think about Dallas? Especially, I mean, this is three years after Dallas, where it was one of the most iconic things in, in America. There are people on the rooftop in the distance. It seems like there's this specter of danger, but also there's this crowd, this incredibly diverse in age and ethnicity crowd who are just reaching out to him, who just want to touch him. And he's there giving himself to them. And that's really the last several years of his life, of that kind of staying involved, staying in the arena, as Teddy Roosevelt would say, and as Richard Nixon would later say as well. <laughs> but So he, uh, yeah, that's that, it's a beautiful photo. It is. I would invite people to look at it, pick up the book. And before you read it, just take a minute to look at the picture and how much is going on. It is fantastic photography. Even the palm tree there in the background sets the stage a little bit and gives you an idea where he is. You know, he's somewhere warm. All these things invoke it in your mind. There is that Pat Brown sign. Just the way even that they're touching and reaching out to him. It's not as if it's just, oh, I want to touch a piece of, of a messiah here. Or a, it seems to be genuine affection. It's really something that I think uh, if you look at the picture, you can only really absorb it from that. And there's a few others, I guess, from that same event. But he really is coming into his own there and becoming a candidate in his own right, becoming a person. And the crowd is sustaining the guy. Yeah, it's hard to imagine that same experience for a lot of other politicians today, especially a you know junior senator from New York. At the time, he was someone who people really put their emotions into. In some ways, too, that was because they needed that release. It was a different type of reaching they did to Robert Kennedy. You know, before when his brother was alive, they tried to reach JFK through him. They knew he had the ear of the president. That was a kind of power. And after the assassination, they still tried to reach JFK through him, except they were reaching to him this time. You know, he would say that to people that it wasn't for me, it was for him. And he would say these with, you know, tear-rimmed eyes because he knew it was for JFK, not for him. I guess over time, he realized that people just need that. They needed to touch him. They needed to be with him. They needed to somehow express what they had been feeling. They'd been bottling it up. You know, right in the book about his first speech with the United Auto Workers, his first real political speech, he goes and enters the room and the room just swarms him. And there's just this push and pull around him constantly. That's not what Robert Kennedy experienced before. He was a celebrity. He was a Kennedy. He looked like the president. He, there were this glamorous family. But this was an emotional connection that is hard to really duplicate in American life. You know, hasn't been since. It probably will be someday again just because of the way that American history goes as far as people really connecting with someone in a genuine way. And that's, I think, why he has lasted as well as a person uh, who we think about when we think of a political icon or of someone who we would like to see emulated in our politics, just because I think of that emotion people felt for him. And looking again at the picture, happy to, hey, put it out there. Today we would do that in sports. It's almost as if you're coming out and you're a star player and people just want to give you a high five, which they wouldn't have done at that time with a candidate. But it's almost letting him pass through the gauntlet and giving strength to him. It's a very human moment for a politician. Yeah. And you compare that to, say, JFK, as you were describing the scene, sitting there with his hand in a bucket of ice because people wanted to come and really pump his hand and crush his hand. I and mean, he'd be a little bit right. tough on him. That's a just a thing that people do, right? Well, yeah, let me say this too, though, because I, I think it's important to remember that he was also still subject to the same sort of criticisms and the same sort of second guessing about his motivations that politicians today are experiencing. I think often we look back on the rosy side. I mean, to say in general, the public, not you or me or people who read history in general, 
then I think it's very, very important to remember that they were making real political decisions and calculations where there were winners and losers, and the losers weren't happy, or the people who felt like they were on the outside weren't always gratified by what the position was. And so, therefore, we have these beautiful images of people swarming him and, and loving him. And while that is all true, he was still living you know, in this, this uh this skin of Bobby Kennedy, who is considered opportunistic and ruthless at the turn of a, you know, word or a speech or a sentence. So yeah, ruthless is a word that comes up again and again to describe him in the revolution of Robert Kennedy. And people really feel that he's a tough guy. And JFK uses him in, you know, in a positive sense. A lot of presidents, Eisenhower also had people like that. Presidents often have a hatchet man. More recently, George W. Bush was the man for his father who went and did the uncomfortable firings when he was president. Thinking of John Sununu, for instance, people have somebody tough sometimes that handles those unpleasant tasks. And so that was his role. And he was happy to take the hits. He was happy to be the one people said, oh, Mm -hmm. I'm sure that the president would say yes to me, but Bobby was the one. And people are in on that game, which I don't think we always admit. We don't want to be mad at the guy we like, that we want to think we still have an in with. So we put it off on somebody else. And it's sort of a weird symbiotic relationship. Yeah, I'll tell you a story that's actually not in the book. And that's a source who's since passed away, was convinced, who, who loved JFK, worked for JFK and worked for Bobby and worked with Bobby and who I, I feel like Bobby would still go to him, not really understanding how he felt about some of the decisions that were made during the Kennedy administration, who insisted to me that Bobby had sick the IRS on him hmm. while he was attorney general and that he could turn away IRS agents by saying, I know you're really working for Bobby Kennedy. Go back you know, to Washington or whatever. <laughs> and he believed that that's why the IRS didn't bother him again. But this was just in general, the, the idea of that JFK would not do this to me. And that was just that I'm a person of value and that, you know, therefore it must be because Bobby's conniving about something. And that's just the role. I mean, that's a taskmaster role of of George W. Bush, as you said, for his father in some ways and, and other sort of political fixers. Robert Kennedy was considered vindictive and opportunistic and was just completely the person who made, who said no. That was his job. His, his job was to say no to the impossible demands. And that also frees the president up. That's an important role because those people are inundated with things. Imagine a president. There's always people who are going to want things. And that is cut short. And suddenly, with all those resentments never really having any release, here's Robert Kennedy, an elder statesman at 38, basically, thrust into all of this world and trying to find his own way. It is such a unique position you describe in the book. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine what it's like to be a person who's considering resigning as attorney general and stepping away from the spotlight in November of 1963, because he believes that people are starting to put the things that they believe about him to the Kennedy brothers and that he's becoming a a liability for JFK. He even tells the president that he can't go and uh, work in the campaign because people still think that he's around, still has power. So he felt that he should just go off. And then two days later, his brother's assassinated. He believes that people are through with the Kennedy family. He even believes that into December, he has a meeting with Arthur Schlesinger and Dick Goodwin, in which he says, get what you want now. We have 11 months of power left, and it ends on the election day of 1964. It takes that time. It takes him until he goes out and sees the public and people wanting to tell him how much they mourn with him, that he realizes that maybe the Kennedy name is something that's going to matter 
in the future. And that's, I think, really what, uh, what this book is also about, how he decides to go about using that inheritance, that legacy that he is now the heir to power that he has. You're listening to my conversation with first-time author John R. Bohr. His book is The Revolution of Robert Kennedy, From Power to Protest After JFK. You can follow him on Twitter at J-R-B-O-H or visit johnrbohr.com. That's John with an H, by the way, and the last name is spelled B-O-H-R-E-R. Kirkus Reviews calls the book, quote, a poignant sketch of a lost champion of social justice, unquote, and points out the author also leaves it to readers to ponder the continuing relevance of this long-dead senator who stood for many as a bridge for a country that was tearing apart, unquote. John, that phrase, bridge for a country that was tearing apart, is from your book, and it strikes me how absent that is in today's campaigns. I know that people romanticize the past. I know that we always look back and say, oh, gosh, it was better. But I feel that as two people that have worked in cable news, that have worked in watching politics, watched a lot of these speeches over the years, that we're qualified to talk about that in, a, in an intelligent <laughs> manner without feeling like we have to apologize for it, as I just did. But you look at the guy and you say, okay, he does some amazing things that we used to see a lot in politics that we don't see so much. We talked about the ruthlessness of RFK. So I wanted to give some equal time here. What do you want readers to learn about him as a bridge builder, as somebody that breaks the mold of what we think of modern campaigns or even campaigns just since, say, 2000? Yeah, I mean, Robert Kennedy had an amazing sense of empathy. So I think he understood when people disagreed that it wasn't maybe necessarily one person was right and one person was wrong, but that just one person had a set of beliefs and another person had a different set of beliefs. So he was constantly trying to be that bridge and to to open a dialogue with people who he disagreed with and who uh, who and people who disagreed with him and were just very sometimes violently, literally violently opposed to him. And I, I think that's part of the empathy, but also um, part of what happened to him in that in Dallas and that change and that that exile all of a sudden, suddenly his political enemy is in power, Lyndon Baines Johnson. That exile from political power really sharpened that awareness of how quickly things can change and therefore and how quickly you can be the one who's out of power. And so therefore that it was important to maybe understand the other side. And so in that way, he was comfortable and yet this affliction was upon him. He was uh, a person who had really been in one of the most powerful positions in the world, who was all of a sudden out of it. And so he could understand, you know, and when talking about revolutions, that's kind of the overthrow of the order. And that's really what he went through. You know, you see him, he's this Kennedy, he looks like JFK, he speaks like JFK, he reminds people of JFK, and yet he grows his hair so much longer. It looks like, you know, he's the other end of the decade from where JFK is the front of the decade. Mm. He was this authority figure from being a lawman, from being attorney general, and yet he was also this troublemaker who was supporting protests and supporting dissent and also speaking out against people who were trying to stifle hearing opponents speak that also sort of lent this duality to him. He was walking the picket line with the grape pickers, but he was also the son of a major businessman. He really just believed that there were going to be revolutions across society because things were not going to remain the same. And he learned that in, you know, one of the most shocking and brutal ways possible. 
And it's impossible to walk around, whether you say wearing the JFK mask is something that I thought of, but walking around as that and having people always compare you, that's such a hard thing to have. And here's him experiencing it against somebody who's been assassinated when nobody's going to say anything bad about you or everybody's going to idealize you because it's such a shock to the system. That position is already so precarious. And then he has to find the right place to express opposition to Lyndon Johnson's Vietnam policy eventually without appearing disloyal, without outraging his supporters. Mm -hmm. They're both Democrats after all. So there's a party loyalty here to worry about. I wonder what readers can learn from the revolution of Robert Kennedy about standing up not just to our political foes, which is easy and even expected. It is expected. We're supposed to be there in the arena. But for opposing those on our own side of the aisle, because that's a challenge here RFK faces. He wants to speak out, but he's not sure how. It seems a little bit waffling in the book, but then you realize that's part of the game of politics. He's trying to use his influence in the right way and not appear to be speaking for his brother from beyond the grave. So what do you hope readers can learn from the book about that? Yeah, I mean, think about the men who are making the decisions about Vietnam. These were guys who he was sitting at that cabinet table with. And they even installed a bust of JFK in 1964 in that cabinet room. So JFK was kind of looming in the background while these decisions about Vietnam were being made. And you have to believe that some of the men in that room believed, honestly, they were fulfilling what JFK wanted, that this was part of his legacy, the ramping up of the war in Vietnam, and that they had a duty to the president, to President Kennedy, that is, to uh, see it fulfilled. And Bobby took the opposite lesson from JFK and the Cuban Missile Crisis and seeing that you can sometimes take a different path and still find success. I think, you know, he was very loyal to the idea of the presidency. And a big part of the book is about how he wanted to be vice president and how he strived for the vice presidency under Lyndon Johnson. He took those concerns to Lyndon Johnson privately multiple times. Then he spoke out when he felt that Dean Rusk had given him an opportunity to say something after the Fulbright hearings. And he quickly learned that there was a very steep price from people he you know, really respected, I might even say loved, like McGeorge Bundy, who uh, attacked him for it. And he retreated. These were things that he desperately wanted to say, though, and that he would find himself saying later in his life in 1967 or 1968. That bravery, it comes from really knowing what's right and having a belief and um, following it. I think that that is lacking. I don't think politics might reward that as much today, though it's hard to say when we don't have the hindsight of history. He seemed a natural vice president there in 64, and certainly people wanted him. You have some uncovered, previously unreported things in the book here that you dug up. I want people to know it's not just a rehashing of everything about Camelot. Again, the whole mentality here is to sort of blur them together into this you know, smear of Irish faces when you talk about the Kennedy family. I gotcha. But as far as that campaign goes, the 1964 campaign, in light of the revolution of Robert Kennedy's wider story, what do you hope people will find surprising in there about how he tries to get in there as vice president, but doesn't make it? Yeah, I think the aimlessness that Robert Kennedy experienced after JFK's death is sometimes confused for just straight up depression. And I think that that gets in the way of really all the political action that he was taking at that time. He was thinking about the vice presidency probably from the day after the funeral. There's this exchange with an aide in which they talk about a Wall Street Journal story in which a Justice Department political appointee is quoted speaking of the president unfavorably. 
December 5th, he asked Arthur Schlesinger about the vice presidency. Should I go for it? He's talking about it. He's weighing it. Initially, he's going to resign the attorney generalship and he's going to step away from politics. In early January, he decides not to do that. And then he's getting memos and beginning these conversations with people about New Hampshire and other primaries that have write-in for the vice presidencies. He's having all sorts of contacts with people to the point where I was able to get this one recording released of President Johnson speaking with Bill Moyers about how maybe they should ask the attorney general to resign on the eve of the New Hampshire primary in 1964. He goes on to sort of hatch this secret campaign for the vice presidency and to the point where he comes up with this scheme at the end of July of 1964 to really pressure the president to take him and to serve as campaign manager for the 1964 bid to actually bring in some of the people who thought he was ruthless and to see that they could work with him and that he could potentially be the vice president. I mean, the reason he wanted to do this is because he saw this as the next step on the ladder to really just carry out his brother's memory and his legacy to stay in power. And then when that doesn't work out, and I think it really was, it was Lyndon Johnson's choice, clearly, but Bobby was okay with it at the end because he knew that it was never going to work then he's forced to really find that direction that he does as a senator and then as a presidential candidate himself. But I think that that period is completely overlooked. And it's a good sense of sometimes, you know, party loyalty. There are things that are more important than party loyalty. And that's truly what I think Bobby learned in that time. And I think that's something that people will come away from. That's also part of his trips to Latin America and South Africa that you describe in the revolution of Robert Kennedy. I wonder how those trips fit into that idea of a real revolution of mm -hmm. the book about Robert Kennedy going, meeting people, becoming a retail politician, as we'd call it today, in his own right. What do those trips make for him, especially when he's having to both defend and criticize and allow criticism of United States policy at the time? Yeah, one thing that Robert Kennedy really enjoyed was talking with young people, and he did it in New York and he, in California and Mississippi, all over the country, in audiences that didn't necessarily agree with him. He found that their questions were sharper, that their minds, while less formed, they were highly opinionated. And so he would go and talk with these kids, and his favorite part was just to open it up to question and answer. And part of his life was to travel around the world and to um, meet with students and be a representative of the United States. And so he went to communist Poland, and he would speak with students openly and people freely. And he would go to Latin America and speak in countries that weren't really excelling at democracy at the time about free speech and expression and, and have these interactions with people who disagreed with him. And in South Africa, apartheid, there were certain student groups that canceled on him because they were worried that he was going to criticize the government in, as far as promoting his own political future in the United States. I think, though, it was a part of his development and part of him embracing that change that I was talking about earlier. And in general, I think he felt that these were the people who were going to inherit the earth and these were the people who were going to experience the most change. He talked about how, you know, for hundreds of years, man had sped his travel by the difference between a horse and a sailing ship. And at the time, men were orbiting the earth. And so he was talking about just the last third of the 20th century that who knew what they were going to experience, the kind of changes over the next few years after that. And I think that appealed to him. 
you mentioned the rosy side, how we tend to look back at somebody who's assassinated, especially, but even just somebody in the past who we only maybe see in idealized photos that are beautifully shot like that one. Nobody takes a picture of you screaming at somebody or when you're at your worst or sneezing or anything like that. So I wonder how you deal with the what if questions from readers when they find out you're writing about Robert Kennedy. Do they ask you a lot of things or are they so confident in this idealized view of Robert Kennedy that they feel they know what kind of president he would have been and he'd have been great in this alternative universe? Yeah, I think people do have an idea. They think that he'd be the kind of leader who would have bridged divides and things like that. And people think that he probably would have gotten, you know, brought into the war in Vietnam quickly. And that that could have been the case, but also could not have been the case. And, you know, real world gets in the way of presidencies often, as we see with pretty much every presidency. There's a way of of never really being able to judge. I think actually Robert Kennedy probably would have been a person who would have been the first to be skeptical about his own ability once in the White House because he knew how tricky it was of an office. I knew a source who would say that, you know, if, if Humphrey could almost beat Nixon, then Robert Kennedy surely would. I'm inclined to agree with that, I think. But I think Robert Kennedy might have brushed off those sorts of hypotheticals. You know, he had a clear idea of what JFK wanted. And so he pushed civil rights and he pushed immigration as tributes to JFK's legacy. But he did not like questions about specific crises, how JFK would react. There was the invasion of the Dominican Republic, where President Johnson sent troops in 1965, in which a reporter went to an aide and asked him a question about, you know, well, what what would JFK have done? Is that what RFK is saying, that President Kennedy would have done things differently? And the aide said, well, I don't know. If that's what you see, then that's what you see. And then mm-hmm. he publishes this aide, JFK would have done differently, RFK. And Kennedy exploded about that. He wasn't happy at all because he said, you know, how would we have known what he would have done? You know, he isn't with us anymore. And Adam Olinsky, who's another aide to Robert Kennedy, would say in, in 1988 that I never heard him say if only President Kennedy had lived, things would have been different because he thought that that probably would have been weakness, that that's not the world we lived in. We had to play with the hand we were dealt. And that was going back to change and and handling change and grappling with it. It's an important distinction. I find when I read history, it's something I admire about people when they don't go back and when historians also don't try to speak for people in history. I know for myself, I look at some of these figures in history that I read a ton about, and I always resist that urge to say, well, if so-and-so was in the White House or if so-and-so could comment on this, because we really don't know. Because when you went through this research of Robert Kennedy, I'm sure there were tons of things that you found digging into these dusty, untouched archives that you were surprised that he did or surprised that he said and Mm -hmm. that he wasn't waving the bloody shirt, as they said, after the Civil War, constantly talking about his brother and trying to do an impression of him. He's trying to walk a path here where he becomes himself. And maybe the most fitting thing is that they named the Triborough Bridge for him in Manhattan. We can't know what he would think of that. And I I won't ask you because, as I say, we can't speculate. But he was a guy clearly here who's trying to build bridges. So maybe the fact that we renamed that for him, even though no New Yorker is probably going to call it the RFK Bridge for the next 100 years (laughs) in everyday conversation, (laughs) maybe it's fitting. He was an incredibly thoughtful guy, and I think he did have his own unique legacy as a Kennedy, whereas Ted, I think, is going to be considered the great legislator, and JFK is going to be considered uh, one of the great inspirers. I think Bobby's going to be considered one of the great healers or a person who people look to and think there's someone who brought people together. You know, whether or not he would have been completely successful as a president doing that, 
I think that's a great legacy to have. It's good to have people asking the question and they can get an idea by reading your book. I certainly never had listened to his speeches and gone back and looked that much. And I am very into this stuff. I love to read history and love to read about our campaigns. So I think the book is very worth it for that account. Thank you. (laughs) I want to close with one final question. I was once standing at the bar in McSorley's Old Ale House, which is New York City's oldest bar. It's an Irish bar, as you can tell from the name. So they have a ton of Kennedy stuff in there. I heard two 20-somethings. They were looking over all the memorabilia and campaign buttons that they have there in McSorley's. They have a bust of JFK, this kind of thing. One button was from Teddy Kennedy's failed 1984 campaign. And the first fellow said to the second, I didn't know Ted Kennedy ran for president, to which his companion replied, yeah, he got shot. And so (laughs) a little funny and a lot infuriating because, of course, they aren't the same guy. Yeah, I know that button, too. (laughs) I sat underneath it as well. And I wondered as I read Robert Kennedy and I thought about that smear of faces here and forgetting that these are individual men from Joe to Jack to Robert to Teddy. These are individuals. I wondered from reading your book, what do you hope that people will remember most about Robert Kennedy that will set him apart from his brothers as an individual? I think, you know, Teddy really did put it best in his eulogy for his brother. You know, the same way that RFK wrote about his brother in this Profiles in Courage Memorial Edition, he wrote about what he really meant to him. And he talked about the inaugural address and being an heir to revolution. Ted Kennedy said at the funeral at St. Patrick's Cathedral, my brother need not be idolized or enlarged in death beyond what he was in life. Be remembered simply as a good and decent man who saw wrong and tried to right it and suffering and tried to heal it saw war and tried to stop it. That is the embodiment of Robert Kennedy. And that's probably the best biography of Robert Kennedy that's ever been written or going to be written. I think Bobby stood up and spoke out. And while he was considered an opportunist at times and questioned in his life, I think people will remember you know, his words about standing up for an ideal and sending forth a ripple of hope. He didn't create a great law and he didn't save the world from nuclear annihilation but he did stand up. And I think that's what probably sets him apart from his brothers. Well, John R. Bohr, author of The Revolution of Robert Kennedy, thank you for offering this fuller picture of the third Kennedy brother, RFK, as more than just one of four brothers, more than the brother of a president, more than a candidate who's defined by a gunshot. It's an impressive debut book, and I wish you the best of luck with it. Dean, it was great to be with a fellow New Jerseyan. Again, the book is The Revolution of Robert Kennedy, From Power to Protest After JFK. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there or even navigate through the Amazon banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to historyauthor.com, we take you to Amazon and amazon.com gives us a small percentage of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just a few extra taps of your finger, you can help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My sincere thanks to John R. Bohr for joining us and for giving us a front row seat in RFK's life as he emerges from his martyred brother's shadow and becomes a man in his own right. You can like John on Twitter at J-R-B-O-H or visit him at johnrbohr.com. 
That's John with an H, and the last name is B-O-H-R-E-R. And while you're at it, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean or Facebook.com slash History Author. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next Monday's all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.